What I like about bringing you this podcast week after week is that I get to deliver some of the best advice from the best in the game about how they go about the work. So take Joe Drape. He's the author of The Saint Makers, Inside the Catholic Church, and How a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith, and several other books, including Our Boys and American Pharaoh, sports writer for the New York Times, and he knows a thing or two about doing the work. If it's squishy, throw it out. Which is another way of saying... It just tell the story and, you know, try to stay out of your way of the story. Hey, I'm Brendan O'Mara, and this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. All right, here we go again. This is the show where I talk to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. Joe Drape makes his triumphant return to the podcast after nearly four years. Kind of crazy. To talk a little shop and his new book, The Saint Makers, and a little bit of horse racing. Of course, that's what we do. Speaking of that, my my book, Six Weeks in Saratoga, that's right, CNFers. I actually write things sometimes. It uh, turns 10 in six weeks. <laughs> six weeks. That's just coincidence. But it turns 10 years old. Haven't published a book since. I was looking at the Amazon reviews. It's not pretty. It's not good. Moving on. I want to give a shout out to Donna Tallarico and her amazing Hippocamp 2021. It's happening this year. It was canceled last year because of, you know, the thing. And now it's happening. The best conference of its kind is back and registration is open on May 15th. The conference takes place in Lancaster, Pennsylvania from August 13th to the 15th. I can't recommend it enough. All nonfiction, all creative nonfiction. It's it's the best of its kind. It's awesome. It's amazing. I plan on presenting again, and I swear I'll do a better job this year. I promise. My speaker reviews for my presentation from the Hippocamp 2019 were about as good as my Amazon reviews for my book. So I've got something to prove. That's just me, baby. Scrappy, rough around the edges, the gutter punk of CNF. Head over to hippocampusmag.com slash conference for more information. Another thing, I've selected the summer essays for issue two of the audio mag. So if you want to listen to it, you're going to have to be a patron at the Patreon community, patreon.com slash cnfpod. Almost 700 people downloaded issue one of the magazine, but only 13 will get issue two as of this podcast. Yeah, I know. So if you want to enjoy more essays and support the not cheap production of this podcast and the magazine itself, go to patreon.com slash cnfpod. And you can always keep the conversation going on social media at cnfpod and head over to brendanomero.com for show notes to this episode and 250 some odd others to sign up for that monthly newsletter. We had a great CNF and happy hour this past Wednesday with a few folks. So if you're on the newsletter list, you can get that exclusive invite. I gave away books to everyone who showed up. Not my book, not my Amazon gutter book, but books I got from being the gutter punk of CNF. Yeah, from my collection. I just got, you know, I have books here. I don't need to keep them. As I see it, books are kind of meant to transfer. And I want to give people that kind of joy that I got from reading them. So anyway, 
Joe Drape is here. You're going to dig this one. Stay tuned for my parting shot at the end of the show. And uh, I guess this is what we're going to do. Here we go. Well, that's something that's always kind of fun. So, what you know, what are you, uh, what are you reading these days? And what's kind of inspiring you? And you know, uh, what's uh, going going in? What that you're synthesizing and enjoying these days? You know, I picked up an old favorite author of mine. He's not that old. He's still alive and very vital. Richard Rousseau, and he has a book called uh, Chances Are, and it's one of his latest ones. And Richard Rousseau wrote Nobody's Fool and Empire Falls that maybe some listeners will remember from HBO adaptations with Paul Newman. And he's a just crack storyteller. They're simple stories set in a small town or a small community. Uh, does great characters. Uh, you know, Sully is the character Paul saw it, uh, Paul Newman played. And Sully was a degenerate gambler who spent many days in the drunk tent, but he was a guy everybody in town liked. So, you know, there's family sagas. It's just sort of a, you know, somewhere on that Dickens, Irving, Patrick Conroy plane of writers, just good, solid storytelling. Nice. Nice. I remember when I was talking to Andre Debus III uh, a while ago, several years ago, and he was uh he was solicited advice from Richard Russo about writing his, his memoir Townie and Russo told him, he's just like, if you have a bone to pick, don't write a memoir, but otherwise just, you know, write the story as best, best you can. And, uh, and that's what, you know, it came from that in the sense that, you know, Debus didn't have a bone to pick, but he did have a really rich, true story to tell about growing up in, you know, Haverhill, Massachusetts, which was just kind of an old mill town. And uh, it was just uh, kind of great to hear. That's like such great memoir advice to not have a bone to pick, to pursue something, a very close personal story. No, that is good. Uh, very good advice. And, you know, memoirs are a very tricky thing. And in the saint makers, there's a thread of that in there. And it was, yeah. more, it was more about, uh, examining what I thought about faith in the Catholic Church and, you know, the state of affairs in both those worlds. And, you know, it helped me discover I don't I didn't have a bone to pick with it, but I had basically decided to live with it, to live with it and not accept it. Uh, and, you know, it was a discovery process. And this was a different kind of book, not only because it was out of sports, but it was much more voicing. It was much more what I thought about things. And that was fun to do. Yeah, that's uh, certainly something I wanted to uh, piggyback on in, in a sense that you know, so many of your books are, of course, uh, the backdrop is sports, even if they're about other things that are more indicative of the, and emblematic of the human condition. Yet this was certainly outside that purview. So, uh, you know, as a yeah, as a journalist, primarily a sports writer, you know, what was it like reporting on something on, on faith in the Catholic Church and something that is inherently very close to the bone for you? It was great. It was liberating. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you the backstory of how this even happened. And, yeah, please. you know, all all dots get connected and God moves in mysterious ways and every other aphorism that's out there about <laughs> Uh, in 2008, I was in Smith Center, Kansas, writing Our Boys about this undefeated little team 
high school football team whose only two rules were love one another and get better each day. And I kept coming across the story of this priest named Father Emil Capon. And people down there, very aware, very proud of him, prayed to him. And, you know, Father Capon was a man of the country, a farmer, uh, sons of farmer, a son of a farmer who had a vocation and went to the priesthood early, but really kind of found his legs as a chaplain in the army. And, you know, he's in fact, is the most decorated chaplain in the history of America, uh, won a silver star in the World War II. And, you know, in 2013, Obama gave him the Medal of Honor after he basically saved thousands of soldiers in a Korean prisoner war camp and gave his life doing so. So, you know, Father Capana kept coming across the story. And I got a little curious about it and just would Google it every now and then or put a Google alert on to see what was going on. At the same time, there was a movement from that part of Kansas to make him a saint. And, you know, I'm parochial educated Jesuit high school, and I wasn't really sure how you became a saint. I didn't had no idea if there was a mechanism to it. Uh, so I was curious about that. And, you know, I, I'm not terribly devout, but I've always been curious about why people do what they do and how they pray and how they think and uh, how they find spirituality. So, you know, that was that had an interest. And then it just kind of laid dormant in me till 2015. And I was having a uh, lunch with an editor who had done uh, my Black Maestro book. And he said, is there anything outside sports you want to do? And it just rolled off my tongue. I said, you know, there's this priest in Kansas. Uh, they're trying to make him a saint. He's got an extraordinary life. I'm, I'd like to go down that. And, you know, the, again, that's what we all do is we recognize stories that interest us because you cannot move forward if you are not interested. So, you know, it makes kind of sense. I'm Catholic. I had some indoctrination into faith. Uh, I'm from the Midwest, from Kansas City. Uh, it was dear to me home there. Uh, never been a huge military guy, but thought, hey, I'd like to learn a little bit about this, and especially the Korean War, which I discovered, you know, it's called the Forgotten War for a reason. Uh, it was short, it was brutal, and really the rest of America didn't pay attention because it was on the heels of World War II. So, you know, I had those elements. I had a biography, a great biography. I had sort of this making the sausage detective story about, you know, what is the history of sainthood and how has it evolved? Then American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown. So I set that back aside. They said, do this book first. I did that book first. And by the time I returned to uh, St. Makers, it was 2017 and I, had two, I was two thirds there, but I was missing something. And it dawned on me what I was missing was, you know, the element of my faith and what I believed and how this had either moved me or changed me or involved me. And, you know, how to pray and what, where, where my faith was at this point. So that became the third part. And that took me, you know, a good year to unlock. And these are all things that, you know, nobody feels sorry for me. It was a fascinating process. But, you know, it's, it's I guess, satisfying looking back on things like this and talking with somebody like you and uh, 
other writers and journalists who, you know, there's always hurdles you have to overcome and mostly they're your own. <laughs> so what was that experience like having to, you know, confront your own faith and in, in, uh, in your, a conflict, I imagine a conflicted relationship to it uh, as the missing piece to get this book sort of over the goal line, if you will. I knew something was missing, but to fall on a sports m- metaphor, I had the yips when it became to uh, mm-hmm. praying. I, you know, it's like I couldn't make the throw to first base. I couldn't get the three foot putt. And I didn't know what that was. I mean, I still had a faith. I still went to the rituals of the Catholic Church. My son's in Catholic, uh, was in Catholic parochial school, now is in the Jesuit high school. So was, I was around it, but I knew something was missing. So, you know, I did like we do when we report a story, right? I just went wide, and I started reading all kinds of, you know, Christian thinkers, philosophers, went back to Thomas Merton. I listened to a podcast that Gary Busey was on, and he was really moving of all things. And the the thing that I remember is he said, you know, hell is for people who have a religion. Uh, Spiritualism is for people who've already been to hell. So, you know, I, my antenna was just up for things. But it finally took, you know, I, there's a somewhat famous uh, Jesuit writer, Father Jim Martin, who said mass at my parish. And we've traveled in the same circles indirectly. So I just called him up for lunch. And for, you know, the non-Catholics out there, the Jesuits are sort of the highest educated, free thinking they go against the grain order of the Catholic Church. Uh, Pope Francis is a Jesuit, for example. And so, you know, we went out, we were talking. I told him my dilemma that I was missing something here and I needed some help. And he said, you pray. And I was like, yeah, I pray. And he goes, well, how do you pray? I said, you know, our fathers, Hail Mary's, the usual stuff. He goes, what do you pray for? And I said, you know, gratitude, graciousness. And he kind of stopped and he said, uh, you have a 16-year-old son, right? I was like, yeah. And he said, when he's troubled or afraid of something, don't you want him to come to you and talk it out with you? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, well, you know, that's what God is. And that's how you should approach prayer. And then he said uh, something that just kind of made me feel like a sixth grader all over again. He goes, have you ever thought of praying to Father Caban? And I never had dawned on me to pray to him at that point. Here I'd spent eight, nine years of my life uh, thinking about him, cataloging him, chronicling him, trying to get to the bottom of him, but never once that I said, "Hey, Father Capon, help me here." In uh, in a conversation I was having uh, years ago with um, Tom French, a Pulitzer Prize winner for the Tampa Bay Times, and he he was always big on serial narratives and everything. And for that paper, when they when they would do that kind of thing, and uh, when we were working together for something, he he always said with certain things like religion or other other things that you're writing about the it's very important to dial down the volume of it because the subject matter itself is very high volume you don't need to trump it up so when you were writing about you know the catholic church the catholic faith and religion here was that always on your mind as something like okay i i have to make sure that i'm not turning the volume too high up on the language because the subject matter should carry the day. Not, not, not particularly. And I know what Tom's saying, and it is a quick aside. 
my new editor and new to the New York Times is Mike Wilson, who was the editor that ushered in Tom and a bunch of other Pulitzer oh, wow. Prize winners. And uh, uh, he, he's thoughtful about this. Um, you know, what I tried to do is just tell my story, okay? The Father Capon story told itself. That's where I mostly stayed out of the way. His life was remarkable enough that I didn't need to goose it or downplay it. If you just play it straight ahead, you've yeah. got a you've got a winner there. Uh, the church story, I had to. It had to be a little bit journalistic because I had to first, you know, realize that not everybody was going to be Catholic on it. So I had to hit the broad strokes of what a saint is. Basically, a saint is the Catholic Church's superhero. And then you kind of explain how it started and how it has evolved. So that was pretty straightforward right there. And, you know, you had to get your characters, your mule to carry the pack through these things. And, you know, I found them. I had to be an essayist. I had to say that after all these years in the Catholic Church, this is what I think and why and where I agree with them and where I don't disagree with them. And, you know, again, I work hard and I think I'm finally discovering or I'm finally comfortable that I have a voice that's very much uh, Midwest. It just tell the story and, you know, try to stay out of your way of the story. And, you know, sometimes uh, you kind of have to prod yourself a little bit. Well, this, this is your story. So, you know, you need to say what you want to say here. So, you know, all those things go through when you're looking at, and I know what Tom's talking about when you're looking through a straight journalism prism, you really do have to just tone everything down. It can't be loud. And, you know, good stories in any journalism. And this is something as a younger writer, I thought is you always want to be wax eloquent you want to do be dramatic and melodramatic uh, yeah but the best stories with the most impact the knockout punch is you just lay down the facts you say you know one fact after another and i mean you can write it and there's a way to tell the narrative of it but uh you know i worked with walt mcdonough on a two series actually that were nominated for pulitzers as we were fact checking like the first eight thousand word he if it's squishy, throw it out. So, you know, if you have any doubt, there's no doubt, you get it out of the, the copy because, and as he explained to me, because, you know, we have enough here, okay? We don't want to undo, we don't want to put the Django to crash the Django just because we really fell in love with this, but we're not 100% sure of it. So that it was great advice. And I follow that all the time now. Yeah, in the the Father Capon section, especially as you recreate and rebuild the part where they're prisoners of war, was really riveting storytelling, and I and I I, I really have to commend you on that because that was just it reminded me of you know un, Laura Hillenbrand you know unbroken what you were able to unpack and unfurl. So for that section, you know, how, how much of a challenge was it or what was the process by which you were able to sort of synthesize those story blocks to really just pull us along? Well, again, I had an embarrassment of riches of material and that reporting, reporting, reporting is everything on every story. And, you know, I had a guy who (laughs) 
basically launched Father Capon's cause to sainthood was a country priest named Father Jim Hotze, and he had basically gathered 8,672 pages of sermons, testimony, interviews from people created, from people who he served with, both in the army and in the prison of war camp. Uh, it was just a treasure trail. It was too much stuff. It was an embarrassment of riches. So that, that was the first thing is, I said, wow, this is great stuff. And then the second is, uh, you're the only one who knows what you left out and you always kind of got to remind yourself that. <laughs> and uh, So, you know, you try to keep it simple. You keep it to the characters who advance the story, the set, set pieces. You know, it's a lot like writing. Those things are a lot like writing movies. You know, think of any movie that you like. There's the first act is here's what's going on. Here's the conflict. The second act is all these things happen to him and he keeps going on. And the third act needs to be familiar, but inevitable. So you just try to tell it like a three act story. I mean, I knew he was going to die at the end. I knew he was heroic in the middle. And then I set up who he was in the beginning that made him make these choices in act two and three. So yeah, that's kind of what you do. It's just try to, again, I, I keep going back to keeping it simple. Don't get out of the way of the story. Uh, you, you, I guess if you were diagramming sentences, and Brendan, I like doing these with you because you make me think about things I've never articulated. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but if, you're dying, if you're diagramming sentences like they made me do in parochial school, uh, the equivalent to that, to what we do is diagram the story. What is the story? Figure that out first and foremost, and then all choices and decisions are made to serve the story. I also liked how, in terms of the structure of the entire book, you know, you could have you had choices to make. You could have teased out the Capon thing from beginning to end and braided everything else in between that story. Uh, but his story kind of resolves itself in a way, you know, in the first third, well, before the first half is over, I'd say. And then it, you know, dives into some other things afterward. Um, you know, what was the the creative choice for you in terms of how you were going to sort of deploy Father Capon in this book? You know, and again, those are things that are done by feel. I'm not a great outliner. I can outline a couple chapters ahead, but I can't. You know, say this chapter's this and this chapter's that and this chapter's this. You know, I knew early on I had to get, uh, and I, I say this as a laugh line, you know, we're sports writers, so we leave all the boring stuff out. And right. so, but I had some exposition. I had to establish sainthood, the church, and this guy early on. And my vehicle choice of that was Father Hotze and his effort to push this all the way to the Vatican. And, you know, it's so, it was definitely, a, it, it is a Don Quixote effort. I mean, the average time between a candidate's death and actual canonization is 181 years. Father Hotze and me, we're going to be long dead whenever uh, he gets canonized. But I'm just, he was a great character who could explain to me what the process was and why he was invested in the process. So, you know, that was the first one. And so 
if I have this first act of this guy saying, this is what I've dedicated my life work to and why, then I got to give the case study of who's the guy that he's, uh, that he's devoted to. And yeah, you, you know, I had to burn some very good stuff halfway through the book. Right. And, uh, but that was the, the choice to make. And I, I figured that if I told it well, that people would keep reading because they'd want to know what next they now they were invested and they were invested enough to say, okay, uh, here's the problem with sainthood, the modern problems, it's expensive and it's political. And the fact that he's an American priest doesn't work to his advantage. And that gave me the leeway to say, here's the problem with the Catholic Church as a Catholic. Uh, they're hierarchical, um, you know, male dominated and not as inclusive as they should be. And so, you know, gratefully, I think, and I think I played it right down. The, the last, the last part wasn't long. It was, you know, uh, I'd say a, a decent essay, essay size thing. So, you know, again, looking back, because you asked me, that's what I'm telling you. But I think I am at least, I'm a very instinctual uh, writer when it comes down to writing. I think last time, uh, you and I talked, I think you were surprised that I don't write as I go, that I have to be done. And then I kind of speed write just because I'm a daily journalist. And unless there's a gun to my head, I won't, I'll procrastinate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I find, I, I make all these choices like in real time while I'm sitting there with the page. And to your point about the sainthood being expensive and political, I, I love the line that you had in there where the the Italians had the home field advantage, basically, oh, yeah, because they're that, most represented. I love that yeah, line. Yeah, 10,000 saints, roughly, and they have more than half of them. And, you know, that'll continue to be the way. That, that'll never reverse. So with, like, Laura Laura Hillenbrand, she reports on Seabiscuit, and she comes across Louis Zamperini. Glenn Stout, he's writing about Trudy Etterly, comes across Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid as a result, you know, his latest book. And so you're doing Our Boys, and then you come across Father Capon and and approaching this story. So I love this notion, this idea of a journalist doing one story and then finding something else that's cool and just putting a pin in it. Be like, oh, I'm going to come back to that. No, and that's that's what you do. And honestly, I'm in the greatest position. And you know, people say, why don't you quit your job and just write books? A, it's not that easy. But B, I like flexing different muscles. And if I'm out there, I mean, all seven of my books resulted from basically my work as a journalist. You know, I found them on stories. I mean, three of them were stories that were in the times in some fashion that I did first. Uh, and, you know, you know what you're interested in and what moves you. And things linger with you and you say, hey, this is this is a good book and a good story. And but also you need to have a bunch of different things going on. You need to challenge yourself in different ways. You need to flex different muscles. And, you know, book writing to me appeals to me because I operate within the strictures of the New York Times and it's a great place and I'm very happy um, you know I admire the place it's got history and everything like that 
but there is a New York Times story. You tell a story a certain way when, it, when it's going to appear in the New York Times, and you're going to have three, four editors looking at it afterwards. Uh, and again, I'm not complaining about that. It's just that is our uh, quality control at that place. Okay, and they're really smart people. And most of the time, 99% of the time, they have suggestions that make it better. And that's fine, too. But the thing about stepping out and doing books myself, it's, you know, I get to tell, choose what stories I want to tell and how I want to tell it. And that's really invigorating. And, you know, yes, there's book editors, but the book editors have bought into your idea in the first place, and then they just want to help you land the plane. Uh, there's not a lens or prism that they think the story should be told to. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy that I've been able to toggle back and forth from, and I feel fortunate I've been able to. Yeah, and uh, to that point, we, we were emailing, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, and you were working on a, a story about uh, this football program in in Georgia, I believe, and and uh, you know, you were trying to strike that sort of uh, that great swath of uh, to make it a New York Times story, where you have very limited space, and you're trying to make it accessible to a general reader, not just someone who knows the X's and O's and everything. And uh, you were just trying to find the right way to shoehorn all your reporting into this thing. And uh, you know, maybe you can speak to that of you know, just trying to shape the things in such a way that it can. Uh, that it can appeal to people, even though you, it, it pains you to probably throw a lot of stuff off uh, onto the ground. Yeah, and that one is in, in particular because, uh, and just a brief overview, Valdosta's the winningest high school football team in America. It's a very polarizing black-white dichotomy. They have some racial tensions there, but add on to that, they have probably the most famous high school football coach in America, a guy named Rush Probst, who was on MTV's Two-A-Days, who was one of, the, like, the first reality stars. And he wins everywhere, and he gets fired everywhere because of ethical violations, all right? So <laughs> it was very rich with all kinds of different things there. And my main character was a guy named Nub Nelson, who was the Touchdown Club executive director, and Nub is named Nub is because he only got one arm. And he is just, you know, a fabulous character, a fabulous guy at least. And, you know, he's the guy that walks through town and talks to everybody and half of them love him and half of them hate him, but he doesn't care either way. And so the balance there was, okay, how do you do this, all this important, you know, textual, societal, you know, New York Times gives us a lens and a commentary on what's going on out there in the time in the post George Floyd uh, world and, you know, ethical violations of over industrialized high school sports, but also just tell a hell of a story about a guy named Nub and his mission to clean it up. And, you know, that's, that's where you have to uh, balance that voice. I mean, I'd write it one way and I, and it, I did get edited there. I mean, I wrote it as uh, Mike said to me, he goes, you know, you wrote it sort of rollicking. And by the time everybody's boxed to it, it's rollicking, but it's less rollicking, if you know what I mean. I mean, you know, uh, you got to get to the nut graph in 300 words on a New York Times story. I mean, you have to have that all-encompassing quote. I mean, basically, 
if you read any New York Times story, if you go up to 400 words, you should know everything you need to know, and then you either choose to read on or not. So that's very much beaten down, uh, beaten into us. And so, uh, you know, you can't get as descriptive. You need you need one detail instead of painting the scene. So that that's that was I just had so much material there, and I had to, you know, shoehorn it all into our style. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing the the range that I see in your work too. With a, a piece of that nature, then your then your books, some are stri- just straight third person. Of course, Saint Makers is kind of a you know, braided journalism and memoir, and then there's a lot of the you know some of the more opinion reported opinion pieces that you might do on horse racing. It's uh it's really um the palette you're able to paint with and do it do it all with you know with a plum in my opinion it's a, it's it's really great to see that sort of writerly palette and see you exercise it in so many different ways it's uh that must be kind of fun for you to have that kind of range well thank you <laughs> i i take it <laughs> second you know i've been doing this a long time brendan i mean this is my 38th year i've been at the times 22 years uh hmm. You know, something I think I've discussed with you before. Uh, I started on the news side, and I think that's incredibly invaluable to uh, be a news reporter before you choose to be a styles or sports or whatever you want to do, because you got to crawl before you can walk. And news teaches you real quick what the basics are and what a story is, and gives you a nose for story. And in my case, I get, was able to hone that, just being in everything from night cops to a metro GA to a national correspondent. And my interest in sports long predated that. And when, in my case, uh, the Atlanta paper, and they got the Olympics. And so they were looking for somebody to lead the Olympic coverage who had news chops, but knew and liked sports and had you know, was fluent in sports. So that's when my crossover moved. I always say, I always like to say, and I'm always looking at young writers and other writers. And when I tell people to put their clips together, I say, you got to be like a baseball pitcher with four pitches. We want to see a fastball, a curve, a changeup, a hard slider. You know, you just can't be one thing, especially when you're trying to get those first gigs. And what what do you tell people these days uh, about, you know, forging a path in journalism, given that the traditional paths that, that I would say, like where how you came up going kind of like, you know, cops, you know, general assignment, you know, national correspondent, then the bigger markets. It seemed like that was a well-worn path, you know, 30 or so years ago, 30, 20 years ago. It seems a lot different now. You know, what do you tell people these days from from your vantage point, your experience? You know, and that's a good point, and it's different. And this is mainly my perspective because uh, I had a direct path, and it was a hard path in the sense that I didn't get to the Times until I was like 38, and that was usually the deal. You had worked somewhere for a long time. And now I have colleagues in their early 20s, mid-20s. They've come from uh, blogs. They write opinions. They've... uh, social media they come from all kinds of different walks of life and writing but one thing is this that i believe is the same is right you have to write 
and you have to have samples, and you have to have, uh, nobody can ask you your grade, they're going to say, show me six things you're proud of. And unless you don't, unless you are doing a hundred to get to those six, or doing as many as you can, uh, you're not going to, you're not going to get in the stream. And they, the first job is always the hardest. And, you know, I do get folks calls. They go to the suburban paper, go to the newspaper, go to your, uh, your online, uh, you're interested in arts, go to rogerebert.com, offer to do reviews. And if they don't pay it first, don't worry about it. You just need to keep exercising your muscles and showing some product. You need some product to take into the world. So, uh, you know, it's people come from all over. It's just really sort of amazing to me. I mean, John Branch, who's a colleague of mine who's really younger than me and who won a Pulitzer, he managed a Costco into his late 20s and early 30s. Hmm. And, you know, he just kept writing on the side. So there, is, there are ways to do it. It's just write and find an outlet. That's good to hear. And, but it's what's dismaying about the state of, you know, doing journalism and certainly long form journalism that it almost feels like a boutique thing, the way writing short stories is like, it's something of a, of a hobby and instead of a vocation, which is unsettling for, you know, for me and for, for a lot of people, because I'm someone who's had a lot of menial day jobs to subsidize the journalism I want to do deeply hoping that the journalism will support me, but it, you know, to this day and I'm 40, it never has. And so I, I, it almost feels like, you know, the long form stuff that you want to do, it's almost like, well, I almost have to chalk it up to being a short story writer. And if I can land something great, but it's definitely not something that's going to like put wind in my sails for, you know, indefinitely, if, you, if, if that makes any sense. Oh, I hear you. And it's tougher on your generation because when I was coming up and I freelanced what, five, eight years, and the same thing, there was good-paying gigs that uh, were low-maintenance, there was churn things that you did, day rates for the New York Times, just going to cover a game in Shreveport when I was living in Dallas, and then the meaningful stuff, you had to cut out and make time on your own, and they didn't pay very well, but at least I had more magazines and those kind of places to go, and they paid better. Uh, now, you know, I, I just flew back from Kentucky and you go to the newsstand now and you think, wow, there's not a lot of magazines. They're very thin and they're really expensive. So, you know, you've, you've lost some of your platforms there. Uh, the online platforms, they're a good outlet, but again, that's so competitive and there's only a few of them. And I don't even know what those guys pay anymore. But yeah, I, I see your frustration is that I'm killing myself for nothing. I'm going to keep killing myself for nothing is basically what you're saying. And uh, I don't know what to tell you, Brendan, either uh, reconcile it or do something else. Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, seeing that you just got back from Kentucky, um, I, I love the piece that you had on on Sheik Mo and the human rights via alleged human rights violations with, with him and uh, you know, and his daughters and everything. Uh, it, the fact that he had the Kentucky Derby favorite and essential quality. And uh, so he had that sort of spotlight on him and, you know, given what uh, he's uh, accused of and everything. Uh, glad that essential quality was only able to finish fourth. 
by by a nose. But like that that was a an illuminating column that I you know read read from you, and I had no idea. And that must have been, I imagine, with someone as powerful as Sheik Mo, that sometimes it can be hard to write about someone as powerful as that or uh, maybe that's just me but i don't know if maybe you felt that at all you know writing about him in such a way you know first of all kind of to back up to what i said uh my news notes served me there i saw this stuff pop up on him i didn't know he had the favorite i love horse racing just personally but i also love it for the material it produces it's the gift that keeps on giving and you have Sheikh Mohammed, but okay, the UN had condemned him. Uh, it's been a thing in Britain and Europe about these human rights violations. You know, when the UN says, show us proof of life of your daughter, that's pretty big news, okay? In Kentucky, I know that world enough, and I know they didn't want to talk about it, and that sort of became the point of my stories. A, he has the favor. B, He's in terrible light in the world's human rights uh, courts. And C, he's dumped billions into Kentucky, especially to win this race. And, you know, he is vast. He's a large landowner there. He's a big employer there. Uh, you know, he spent a billion dollars at the Keeneland sales over 40 years. So, yeah, it's hard to get those people to talk to you. But it's sometimes, and I do say this, is, Sometimes the best thing is when they won't talk to you, okay? They just decline comment. Then you've got to keep going the other way around. So, yeah, I mean, you, it can be daunting if you think about it. But at the other time, you got to think, well, you know, this is news. This is valid. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to offer everybody an opportunity. And I called the UAE and I called their... Going to momentarily punch in UAE, United Arab Emirates. Uh, Dubai, a lot of horse racing there, and uh, just wanted to clear that up. Okay, back to Joe. In our embassy here, and they chose not to speak. So, on to the next story. Yeah, and and speaking of you know horse racing being such a great uh, factory of story, you know, you had the great uh, piece about uh, Carmouche and and you know that generational tie between you know father and son jockeys. And everything. It's always it, it. Those things, like you said, like horse racing is really a sport. It, it, from a pure story standpoint, it just constantly gives and gives and gives. It does. It's the. It's a very democratic sport. I mean, you have uh, uneducated people living on the backside who are colorful and want to talk. You have billionaires who want to talk. You have men, women. Uh, and the great thing about it is all you got to do is show up in the morning and people will talk to you. It's not yeah. like now you go to a major league locker room in any sport and the athletes can spend, and this is well pre-pandemic. Now you don't even do that. Now they just zoom in for five or 10 minutes for this game. But, you know, pre-pandemic and maybe someday post, you had 80 reporters inside a little locker room where the players are hiding for most of it, except the 10 minutes that they're made, the league mandatory is. And you have people shouting questions at them. And it's very, you know, it's a very superficial way to cover things. And I'm not dissing any of my colleagues. It's terrible ways to work. And, you know, I'm 
had this embarrassment of riches that I can just show up in the morning and find and talk to anybody who's there. That's what's great about horse racing is that it's 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 mainstream enough where it's on enough people's radar, at least with a you know, triple crown, maybe Breeders' Cup. And certainly, you know, in our circles, then we start getting into like Saratoga and everything. And that's like big, big deal. Um, but we can go up on the backside and talk to basically the Bill Belichick of the sport or what, whoever that is. Maybe it's Pletcher or Baffert or Chad Brown or whoever. A, or, you know, go up to the LeBron James of the sport. We can go up to John Velasquez and and anybody on the backside with barely more than just a, a handshake. Like you just can't get that kind of access anywhere else, but on the backside, it's right there for you. Oh yeah. That, that is it. And that tells you everything about it. And yeah, it is mainstream enough that these five weeks in the spring, especially this is their light to shine right here. Okay. This is, this is when they get a rub elbows with the big boys. And to do that, they need that access the other, what, 47 weeks a year because they want to be noticed, all right? They want to take advantage of their star turn. So uh, that serves it serves both of our needs that way. Oh. And plus, you know, it's an interesting group of people. I know you've yeah. spent many of that on there. And, you know, if you can't find an interesting conversation with at least – a laugh every minute and a half at the track, you're not trying or you, you should just stay away from there. I mean, because <laughs> you, it just is a place populated by characters, by friendly people, by people united by this interest in these four-legged athletes and the going-ons around them. It's, it's a really common language. Absolutely. And, you know, before we were on, Mike, you were kind of asking what I was working on. I, I drew, kind of drew a blank. Um, but uh, there's a I always like looking back 10 years. That's always like a ripe time to always look for a story, you know, just 10 year anniversary of fill in the blank. And uh, so 10 years ago, of course, you know, Shackelford finishes fourth in the Derby and he's, you know, kind of but wins everyone's heart because he's just one of those people's horses. He's a workhorse. And uh, that night I was covering the Derby for this website, Kentucky Confidential, but I was the uh, the bourbon underworld writer. So I was covering the nightlife. But after that Derby, I was actually at Dale Romans's house who trained the horse. And it was kind of a real touching scene. They were all watching the replay and just rooting for Shaq every single time he's going down the home stretch. And so, uh, but th- two weeks later, he he wins the Preakness and becomes one of those people's horses. And so I'm kind of writing, I pitched a Pollock report, uh, sort of a reported column about it. And uh, they're on the, they're interested. So I just have to sell them a little more on it. But it's, uh, but it's one of those things where it's a horse like Shackelford, that big white blaze, the way he digs down in the home stretch, bears out a little bit, but he's just one of those doesn't give up kind of horses in it. You know, so that's kind of what, what I'm working on. And sometimes you just see the human element in a horse and you just, you really latch on to them. And that's, and honestly, that's what you have to do. I mean, Brendan, we're covering a two minute race. Okay. I don't know how you get, I don't know how you get 900 words out of a two minute race. And uh, that's why I try to focus on the people all try to focus on the people and you see it through their eyes and you tell the story through theirs. And or sometimes you just tell it through the fans and the betters eyes. Uh, 
you know, what, what's unfolding, what's good about it, what's bad about it. Yeah, or you just go up to somebody like Dale Romans and you go, <laughs> there you go. There's your 900 words. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, Joe, I want to be mindful of your time. So as we sort of bring this uh, airliner down for a landing, uh, I always like to kind of close these things out with asking uh, the guest for a recommendation of any kind. And that can be a, a cool kind of coffee or a, a book or a movie. It's always up. It's dealer's choice. So like, you know, what, what would you recommend for the listeners out there? You know, this time of year I'd love because I go to lighter reading and I've been a lifelong fan of mysteries and, you know, serials. Uh, and I've really been into the last couple of years, I guess it's called Hilder Moore. And it's these books and series, usually a sheriff or a detective, uh, in a small town or in a fictional town. And the two guys that I'm really into, and I can't wait for their books to hit my, hit my house to get them, is Ace Atkins. And he's got a former Texas Ranger who's a sheriff of a town in little small town in Mississippi that has, you know, Gulf Coast gambling and Dixie mob and all kinds of things. And a guy named Brian Panowich who has a, uh, sheriff in the mountains of North Georgia with a real complicated uh, history, family history. In fact, his his daddy was the legendary moonshiner and his brother helped turn that over into drug trade. And it's all about what happens up on this bull mountain up there. So they're really just good, quick reads. I, I love them. They're really well told. They're really well written. I mean, don't think... Uh, just because it's that commercial fiction like that, that they can't turn phrases and get into people's heads. So that's what I recommend for your listeners. Fantastic. Well, Joe, always a pleasure to talk to you about craft and horse racing and this, uh, this whole rigmarole that we've been in for years. It's uh, always a pleasure. So thank you so much for the time. And uh, as always, thanks for the work. Hey, Brendan, thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. And this is, as your listeners know, this is a contribution of which I am one of your listeners, is a contribution to all of us. So you two keep up the good work, will you? Pretty slick stuff. Thank you to Joe for coming back to the podcast. And thank you for you for listening. Thanks to you for listening. I appreciate it. You know I do. Uh, be sure to maybe consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't had one in ages, I'd love to be able to read it on air to give you some some uh, some props for doing that, and uh, you know to incentivize you to do it. If you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, take a screenshot, email that to me. I'll, I'll coach up a piece of your work for up to two thousand words, give you a little teaser about what it's like to work with me on something more expansive, and uh, that's my way of showing a little love. If you have time to read, leave a nice review. Just email that to me at uh, creativenonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll start that dialogue. Yeah. So, Joe, pretty great. We go back uh, several years at this point. He blurbed my hapless Saratoga book 10 years ago, and here we are. Still buds, still talking shop, still talking horses. Check out the great work he does for the New York Times and pick up a number any number of his books. Uh, Saint Makers is definitely a, a pivot for him, but still still great reporting, great storytelling. Uh, what That you would come to expect from someone like Joe. And again, can't stress enough about going to the Patreon page. 
sign up and receive the next audio magazine. It's a lot of work, and I want to put dollar bills in the pockets of writers. The show and the magazine are a lot of work, and trust me when I say this is no cash cow. Podcasters, by and large, don't make any money. So those of us, or those of you who stepped up to the Patreon pl- uh, Patreon plate, excuse me, are superheroes already. They get the heaviest of fist bumps. And don't worry, I'm all vaxxed up now. That second Mandurta nearly killed me, but I'm here. Got a thing or two to say about regret. It's not too much of a bummer. The last two weeks, this parting shot has been a grade A bummer. But this, uh, I was thinking, okay, I was actually talking to Joe, kind of triggered the, a little uh, a little thing in my brain. And uh, one regret I have, a big one, is not transferring from UMass my sophomore year to play baseball somewhere else. And I was burned out and I just quit. But, yeah, that was a big one. Uh, but I also regret when I was about 33, 34. Oh, excuse me. You can tell this is a scintillating story. I uh, I quit a job at a newspaper after only three days due to just toxic levels of anxiety. Uh, I, I, I got hired at the Schenectady Daily Gazette, so kind of a mid-sized paper there in upstate New York, a beat reporter for this old sort of haggard town of Amsterdam in upstate New York. Old mill town, very depressed. And, I, you know, I'm a sports guy, features guy, and this is going to be my first real sort of hard news gig. And I somehow BSed my way through my interview, and they they hired me. Thank you, Judy Patrick, for taking that gamble on me. And Miles. Miles is the other editor. I don't know how I remember this. Um, but... I was having, like, near panic attacks daily at the thought of having to cover, you know, crime scenes and fires and floods and murders and cops, things I've never done before. And I didn't eat for three whole days. And then I said, I can't do this. And they were like, okay. And I wish I had stuck it out and worked through the growing pains because, as you know, I'm a pretty shitty reporter, and the skills I would have learned would have been invaluable. I kick myself to this day because I could be way better at it had I stuck that out. Pay was pretty decent, too, at $14 an hour. Uh, I make $18 an hour now as as the the opinion page editor for a newspaper, for a Gannett newspaper. But I'm only part-time, so it's not really that much, though. I'm I'm one of those dudes who just lives in regret, bathes in it. And after talking to Joe, I realized I could have been on that Joe trajectory to something good, maybe even great. And now I feel like I've wasted the last 10 years, and I sh- should probably see can- seek counseling. But in the meantime, stay cool, CNFers. Stay cool forever. See ya. See ya.